0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Fruby, and this week we're in the native Apache, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Pueblo, Shoshone, and Ute land of Colorado. From
1: the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. In the waves of New Hampshire, to skies of Montana, I want 50 Feminist States. And when you hear the call, you know so well. Sisters, speak out, I know I
0: will. Hi, 50 Feminist States fam welcome to season five of the podcast. I am so excited that you are joining us for this very special and a little bit different season. If you're new around here, I'm Amelia Ruby. I am the host and executive producer on the podcast. So far, I have traveled to 28 states in the US to interview feminist activists and artists about their work and their relationship to feminism. You can find all of those episodes at 50feministstates.com, I always highly suggest starting with the very first one in Nebraska, if you are just joining us. But of course, if you just found yourself here, I'm so happy to have you. Season five is going to be great. Before we dive into this first episode of the season, an episode I am so excited about, I wanted to share a little bit of context for season five. So as you know, this podcast is all about travel. It's about going places and talking to people where they live and work. It's about seeing how they're building communities and how they're fighting for change in those spaces. And part of the reason I work so hard to raise money for the podcast is that I think that going to where the work is happening and where people live is really important and avoids the types of what I see people calling like parachute reporting happening, particularly when people from more urban areas talk about more rural settings. This season, that wasn't possible. I set out on the season five road trip, I think the morning after our president declared a national emergency due to COVID-19. And it was An incredibly stressful time. I really wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do the trip, but I had planned all the interviews. Everything was scheduled. Hotels were booked. I metaphorically gassed up my car and then was about to literally gas up the car and get going. And I flew out to Denver where I was going to pick up a car and head out. And the day after I got there, I realized I had to cancel the whole trip. So it was. Of course, a really challenging decision in terms of there was so much momentum going. These trips are such a a joy and a privilege, and I really wanted to bring this one to life. But the safety of those communities and my own body were really important, and so it became pretty obvious quickly that the trip needed to be canceled. The big question for me then was, what did that mean for this season of the podcast? I had interviews scheduled. I had people I wanted to talk to. And at the same time, the whole point was to talk to them in their locations, in their states. And I decided that I was going to go ahead and do all the interviews remotely. I have had a pretty strict policy against doing remote interviews from locations I've never been to on the road for the podcast. In the past, I've done a few Zoom calls or interviews to catch up with people who maybe weren't in town when I went through a city, but I have never done a remote interview from a state that I haven't been to before. And that changed for this season. I really felt like the podcast and myself had already committed to these stories and brought these people into the 50 Feminist States community. And I I still wanted to tell those, um, even right now, perhaps especially right now. And it's really made me reflect on the role of place and what it means to go places and what it means to be somewhere. And I think that the conversations that will be shared in season five are just as rich and just as important. And I took special care to make sure that even if I couldn't go to the places that we're kind of hearing about, learning about, reporting on here, I really tried to make sure that people were given space to share what their world is like in their own words and to bring that into the podcast because it's so important to me for 50 Feminist States. So this season is brought to you by Zoom recording. (laughs) That also means that the audio quality will not be quite as good as previous seasons. A real joy of sitting down with people is that we can capture voices a lot more clearly and true to how they sound in person over Zoom. That's always gonna sound a little distorted. So I'll just flag that for you this one time and then let it go for the rest of the season. I think though something that is really special about this season that no other season of the podcast has really been able to do is that I got to talk to people about how this global pandemic is impacting their work. And in some of the interviews, we'll hear a lot about that and others, not so much. But I think it's been really nice to, even if I can't go visit people, to hear how social distancing changes organizing and artistic practice. And over the course of the season, you'll hear some pretty profound reflections on that in terms of people's personal experiences and their political actions. And I'm really excited to bring that to the podcast for season five. One more thing that I wanted to share at the beginning of this episode before we get to the amazing interview you're about to hear is really just a moment maybe of radical transparency and a little bit of vulnerability for me. So since the beginning of this podcast, I have really tried to go it on my own. I have researched the guests, planned the trips, recorded the interviews, produced them all, made the social media stuff. I've had some, a little bit of wonderful social media and PR support from Kyle and Sebastian. Shout out to her. If you saw our Women's History Month campaign on Instagram, that was all her doing. But really, I've kind of taken this on with that like one woman show mentality. And during all of this, that really broke down for me. And I know all of the critiques of the neoliberal self-sufficiency. And so I think I knew that that was coming. I knew that the way I was trying to take on this whole podcast by myself wasn't sustainable, but also wasn't true to some of the grassroots and collective ethos of the project. And so I started working on that in a very small way, which is that I brought in a producer to help edit some of the episodes of this season. So shout out to Darby Masters, who is who edited this interview and is editing a bunch of the episodes of this season. i so appreciative of her help. I'm excited to have another badass woman in audio lend her talents to this shared collective project. And I share that just because if any of you kind of need that permission or gentle push to give yourself a break and ask for some help, I'm right there with you. That's what it took to get this season off of my external hard drive and into your ears, and I am so glad that it's finally getting there. So now that I've talked about the circumstance, methods, and my feelings as season five, what are you going to hear this season? In season five, you're going to learn about fly fishing. You're going to learn about tattooing. You're going to hear all about the Santa Fe Dreamers project and the work that they're doing to serve trans migrants in detention in New Mexico. You're going to hear about doula trainings and full-spectrum doula work in Texas and nationwide. You're going to learn about a needle exchange in Las Vegas that is serving the community there with a particular focus on sex workers. And we're going to hear from an illustrator and artist living in Utah about her journey toward feminism. I cannot wait for this season. It is so wonderful. You want to hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss an episode. You want to get on our newsletter and make sure that they're in your email inbox too so that you hear every single one. It's going to be great. For today's interview, I spoke with Erica Nelson. Erica is a badass fly fisher. She is an ambassador for brown folks fishing. She is a Native American woman who runs a consulting firm for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she currently lives on the Ute, Shoshone and Arapaho territory of Colorado. I found Erica through her Instagram account, Awkward Angler. And I loved reading about her journey as a self-taught fly fisher woman. During this episode, you're going to learn a whole lot about fly fishing. If you've never thought about it a day in your life, that's okay. You can join me in being a total amateur. Erica guides us through it really kindly. You're going to learn about what it means to fly fish for equity and how Erica is working toward changing some of the structures that probably are the reason that myself and some of you listening feel like they have no clue about fly fishing or don't even know how they would learn or if they'd want to. We're going to hear her talk about her diversity, inclusion, and equity firm and the work that she's doing to change not only recreational sports, but other industries. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear Erica reflect on why it's so important to her that feminist practice be intersectional. This was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the podcast. I think I say that every time, but I mean it every single time. You are going to love these 30 minutes that we spent together, and I'm so excited to share them with you. So without further ado, here's Erica.
1: I'm Erica Nelson. My pronouns are she, her. I'm currently located in ancestral lands of the Ute, which is currently known as Crested Butte, Colorado. I moved here last year, a little over a year ago from Lander, Wyoming, so it's been a fun adjustment. <laughs> I'm an avid fly fisher. I'm a brown folks fishing ambassador. Some of their identities are cisgender and I'm also Native American. My tribe is Navajo. Some of my professional work that I do is leadership and organizational development for a large corporation. <laughs> and then I'm also a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant as well and I've been doing that for a little over a year awesome I want to talk about every piece of that but I thought that I would start with asking you about fly fishing because that's
0: kind of how I came to be familiar with you through your Instagram account awkward angler so could you share the story of how you started fly fishing and you know I'm sure the many successes and challenges you've faced in the sport
1: yeah. So when I was living in Wyoming, I used to play a lot of disc golf and I used to do it competitively. And when I moved to Wyoming, it was a very windy state. And so figuring out that the courses weren't well maintained and whatnot. So I figured I needed a new hobby. I worked for Knowles, which is the National Author Leadership School in sales and marketing and also instructing And we get free rentals, so we have access to a lot of gear rentals, so rock climbing, backpacking, camping, supplies, and then part of that was also fly fishing. So I remember going to our gear room and just not knowing what I was doing or (laughs) had any clue of what to grab, but luckily some of our outfitters have things just packaged out, so I grabbed the kits and watched some YouTube videos and just tried to teach myself and get out on the water. So after catching a lot of trees and (laughs) snagging and falling around and just kind of not catching anything, just kind of more or less like more YouTube videos, but also use online resources. And that's kind of when I started Awkward Angler and just kind of reaching out for what are you doing? Like, what is this all about? (laughs) Asking questions and trying to meet other people in the community through this like transition of figuring it out. Another side note is, in order to use resources, I ended up reaching out to fly fishing guides. But the way that I did that was actually through Tinder. Wow, <laughs> so, cool. <yeah. laughs> so, I would just swipe like, right on every fly fishing guide or anyone holding a fish, essentially, and start pestering them and messaging them with questions. <laughs> what a great use of Tinder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it's like my hookup app, like hooking up on fish. So. <laughs> That actually gave me a lot of access to water, and you know guys were really excited, one because I was a female excited about fishing, but also just wanting to get to know people, especially in the fly fishing community. so I got to meet a lot of interesting people in Wyoming and got to explore many different waterways and different access and you know, I just had questions I was really exposed to this world overnight, it seemed like of most of them were guides, right, so they had their own equipment, they had their own boats they had everything. And, you know, I was just like, what are you doing? Like, what is this like? And I was also a whitewater boater as well, but the transition from whitewater boating to row, like fly fish guiding is a little bit different. So I had questions about that. And so the more that I got into the technical part, I also was interested in client interaction. So what type of people do you spend all day with? (laughs) You know, and just really curious and come to find out it was mostly wealthy white men that their clients were. And most of the guides were obviously white men as well. And I'm like, you know, have you seen any diversity or anything else on the water? Or do you even know like ancestral lands of where you're at? And, you know, they would be like, no, (laughs) I've never really thought about this before. So the more that I got into it, the more questions I had. And a guided trip is over $300 for at least a half a day, which is a few hours. So But then you're just learning how to cast and how to do a lot of technical things. And it's not really full exposure. We can still have a great day on the water, even just in 30 minutes. But I was just noticing a lot of, I don't feel like I fit in, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of white male. It's pretty male heavily dominated. And I also didn't see many women of color. So that's kind of when I really started reaching out on Instagram and started a you know, awkward angler of being able to hold a space for asking these awkward questions and having these awkward conversations and really pointing out my observations and things that I've seen as I'm transitioning into being self-taught to finally finding mentors to finally getting into the industry and being invited to these spaces. And I've noticed that trade shows and things that I'm invited to, they're not willing to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. And that's part of the awkwardness is <laughs> one, stumbling and making your way across the river and catching trees. Is this normal? But also, you know, I don't feel like I fit in here. There's times where I just won't go fishing because it's, there's too many people there, you know, that seem intimidating or that don't look like me. And I didn't really walk into a fly shop either for about two years just because it was intimidating. And so I just wanted to reach out and ask these questions. Are other people feeling this way? And why is it this way? Why is it structured this way? And so that's kind of how, where it started.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing, especially about like the meaning behind the handle, which I like the many meanings of it. I think that that's really important and thoughtful. And I like that a lot. Can you just talk a little bit then about what it means to you to be as your Instagram profile puts it, fly fishing for equity. So how has that become part of your fly fishing practice? Or just what does that phrase mean to
1: you? Yeah. So as an inclusion and diversity consultant, you know we're always striving for equity. What does it look like to have the playing field look even, right? What does the industry look like for the fly fishing industry specifically to hold an equitable space, whether you're disabled or a woman or a woman of color or someone from a marginalized community? Mm -hmm. And what is the industry doing about it to kind of have that space and hold that space, not only for representation, but also inclusion? And so me asking the questions, it's kind of been exciting. I've been asked to be on fly fishing panels, which has been an awesome space that I've been invited to, but Mm -hmm. also as I'm there, I'm asking these questions and it really is just holding that awkward conversation, asking those questions. And So Mm -hmm. I'm also a a professional coach. So that's kind of my nature is just, why is it this way, you know, and what can we do about it and how can we assess and build better strategies that are more inclusive? So, you know, as people say, fishing for compliments, I think that was actually how I started my Instagram account. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm fishing for a little bit more. I'm fishing for equity. And where is it? You know, it seems the industry hasn't like, caught it yet <laughs> or isn't in the near future. So what do you, what strategies look like on the business component as far as, you know, not only marketing, but also their hiring and recruiting, their retention strategies, you know, they're onboarding their training. And then for the guides in the outdoor industry, what does that look like? for guides to have space for clients that aren't their norm, you know, and what does it look like for their education? What are they being guided and trained on? And how does that trickle down? So there's a lot of room for improvement. So I'm just kind of here to, one, ask the questions, but I'm also here on the receiving end to to be hired. (laughs) And I can with that and so why not have a conversation and we can go from there what you can do better not only as an avid fly fisher or angler but also a guide or an educator instructor but also if you're in the industry then let's work together and figure it out
0: for people listening who like myself who are maybe not so familiar with fly fishing I'm wondering if you could just talk about maybe one or two specific things that you think would make fly fishing more accessible to any of these marginalized populations that you're talking about. I'm definitely hearing everything you're saying in terms of there's a lot of structural work to be done. There's interpersonal work to be done. Can you think of like an example of a situation or a practice or a policy that either you've seen that you thought created more accessibility or that you'd like to see change?
1: Yeah, I think for starters, I think the entry level for a person just wanting to figure it out <laughs> there, I didn't know where to start, you know, yeah. if it wasn't or that pack that was kind of put together, I would have never been able to figure out the pieces. And so, you know, not only in design and gear design of having that accessibility, you know, and I know that there's brands trying to have a product out there that's also a kit as well. So that's something that I see as helpful, but what's actually going to really get somebody excited to grab it, you know, and it's more representation. You know, I, I think that seeing more people... on the water that are of different identities. It can be an intimidating space to enter when all you see is, you know, older white men over 50 (laughs) that aren't talking to you at all, you know, that kind of come off route or or trying to hoard the space alongside of the river, you know, where they're kind of marking their boundaries and their territory. So one is gear accessibility and also the barrier of fly fishing licenses. And there's a lot of restriction around boundaries and what stretch of water you can fish on and what you can't fish on due to private land rights and just different access. It's really difficult to navigate. So what does that whole structure look like and how can we educate, be a little bit more informative as the industry of this is how to do it (laughs) essentially. And then also just saying hello and being a friendly human being. (laughs) And yeah. a welcoming space, you know, even just walking into a fly shop, you know, there's so much ego that you have to kind of sift through in order just to kind of figure out the right question to ask or even just opening the door, you know, so, so just being approachable and inclusive is a great way to start.
0: Thank you for sharing this. Cause that's really helpful for me. I think as you were talking, I realized that, yeah, I also just have this like huge, barrier in my mind of even ever imagining myself fly fishing for all of the reasons you're talking about, <laughs> you know, lack of familiarity with the outdoors, discomfort with kind of my own amateur noviceness, the fear of talking to older white men who will speak down to me like all of those things keep me from even imagining myself doing this, let alone going and doing it. So it's just helpful to hear kind of those things that you're saying that you've been through and ways that the industry really can change.
1: Yeah. The first time I actually tried to go fishing on my own as an adult, I think I was 19 back in college in Utah and me and my roommate woke up one day and we're like, we live near a Creek. Let's just try fishing. (laughs) So We went to a sporting goods store and just looking, browsing the fishing section, this older white guy comes up to us and is like, can I help you? And we're like, yeah, we want to go fishing today. And he was just in disbelief of like, well, choking over his words like cool. oh oh uh, you can't just wake up and say you're gonna go fishing and I was like well we did and we're gonna go like what do you recommend and we weren't even at that time in my life I didn't even consider fly fishing so I was just looking for like a basic spin rod which is probably most of us are familiar with as kids <laughs> and so he reluctantly like, showed us these models and these things and these kits and then he's just like trying to shy us away from it and going off on how it's an art and it takes years and you just can't go one day, you know, I didn't really know what he was getting at and we were able to go and have a blast, you know, but it just kind of left this taste in my mouth of like, why was a salesman man <laughs> hesitant to sell to young women just fishing gear in general? So I like always just kind of left this sour taste in my mouth yeah. of trying to get into fishing. So yeah. It's it's hard. So even just that, that experience has really shaped kind of getting into the sport and kind of elbowing my way in, I Mm -hmm. guess you could say.
0: (laughs) Could you talk a little bit more about Brown Folks Fishing and your work as an ambassador for that organization, group? I'm not quite sure how they run
1: yeah, so I was actually an outdoor retailer a couple years ago, and one of my really good friends, um, Jaylene Goff, she's the founder of Native Women's Wilderness, and she was telling me, you know, about her. She's also an avid fly fisher, and so she was saying, "Have you met Tracy? She's the founder of Brown Folks Fishing. It's not quite launched yet, but she's looking for you know more representation in the fishing industry, not necessarily fly fishing, but fishing in general." So I ended up reaching out and. That was exactly what I was looking for was just to kind of be a person to be the representation for other women of color that we are here. We're holding a space for, for us, you know? And so to me, that's on a personal level. It's pretty exciting to kind of have that platform and and stand in solidarity with other fishing folks as well. So there's about 18 ambassadors and, you know, we all do all sorts of different types of fishing from tankara to Spin to Bass to, you know, the fishing industry is pretty large. Fly fishing is actually pretty small in that component. Mm-hmm. So it was just really exciting to hear other people's stories of, hey, I've had that happen to me too. Or, I didn't feel welcome in the space also. And so it's really like a really tight knit community that we have formed as a group together. So figuring out what we want to do as a group. Some exciting things that Tracy's already established was like a gear library. So kind of trying to work with different brands of having that accessibility for if we want to put on a program or a clinic or host an event. We work with several different companies or a couple different companies that help us obtain the gear so that way we can have people just show up and not have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. We um, sponsor fly fishing licenses. So if you do to come to one of our events and this is something that you want to pursue, we don't want a fishing license to be a barrier. So fishing licenses can range anywhere from, you know, 20 bucks if you're a resident. And I just moved moving, moving having to move to Colorado <laughs> a year ago, my license was over $100 as a non-resident. So it can be pretty pricey and it can be a pretty barrier as well. We're also working on a fellowship program. So how can we get other folks of color, you know, in the industry and how can we support guide schools or get more guides of color also out on the water? So those are just some of the various things that we're, we're working on. Right
0: now. Yeah, those are all like such exciting and, and rich and seemingly necessary projects. It's cool to hear about. yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering, before we go on to talk about your consulting practice, I just have one more question. I'm open to hearing kind of however you might think about this, but I'm wondering if or how being Native American impacts your fishing practices, or if you conceive of it in that way at all.
1: Oh, huge. Not necessarily with the Navajo. We never really had, you know, I'm sure that there was some fishing (laughs) involved near rivers and streams, but, you know, I am connected, you know, as an indigenous person, I feel so connected to the land, the ancestral lands. And particularly where I live right now, there's a lot of great access to different watersheds. So I'm just thinking of, you know, the youth that used to live here and how they use fishing as for sustenance, especially in the Pacific Northwest or other parts of the world. Fishing was the way of life, way of living. You know, one of our ambassadors, Autumn Harry, is also a protector of Pyramid Lake, which is just outside of Reno, and really done a lot of great work with her tribe and the hatcheries there too, and just having this deep connection, almost a deeper connection. It's not about the biggest trophy fish, right? It's more like being there and being connected is pretty powerful pretty cool experience to, to kind of have that lens rather than just, um, this is just a sport or a hobby or, um, you know, I'm I'm out to get the latest and the greatest. It's, it's a little bit deeper. It's connecting with a lot of ancestral roots and the way that other tribes have lived as well through vision.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to imagine like what would happen if the whole industry was reframed from that perspective rather than competition and cool gear.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How different it might be. Exactly. You know, thinking about other tribes that plan for seven generations and with, you know, what does our business model look like in seven generations? We would probably see a little bit more environmental impact on a positive level, whereas just latest and greatest and getting mine and here and now, you know, need yeah. that trophy fish, et cetera. Yeah.
0: So now we've talked a lot about fly fishing and fishing. I would love to hear more about Your consulting firm, which I think is called Real, is that right? Yeah,
1: R E A L. Yeah. So that stands for Reconcile, Evolve, Advance, and Lead.
0: Cool. So can you tell me how that got started and I guess how you co-founded that firm and what work that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So I was working in sales and marketing at a pretty large leadership organization. And I worked really closely with our diversity manager. Her name is Sydney Clark. And We noticed that we needed to partner a lot on different campaigns, different things that needed to happen within our larger strategy. How can we build more access for marginalized communities? And so we partnered really heavily within this organization together. And we hit a lot of brick walls with leadership and I think when people try to enter the diversity, equity, inclusion space, there's a lot of awkwardness. It's really uncomfortable. And so we got a lot of rejection of that's not a good campaign or, you know, what's the ROI? We need this return, you know, return on investment. Mm -hmm. We need it quickly. We need to have it happen by the end of the fiscal year, et cetera. And so knowing that this work takes a long time and it's not just a checkbox, we really were just like, okay, maybe this isn't the company for us. And so just one night hanging out at her house, it was just, I used to travel a lot for work, especially doing recruiting, marketing campaigns, and I would get into these side conversations with other trade show company attendees. And so we ended up getting into a conversation of how their marketing wasn't that awesome. (laughs) For example, we worked a lot in like higher education gap year space. And so there were a lot of photos on their banners that would have a white person having a selfie with a bunch of black kids, you know, from a third world country. And I'm like, that's, you know, that's kind of poverty porn. <laughs> like, how do you feel about that? That's your marketing. And I would just, again, ask questions. And, you know, they're like, these are really good questions. And I never really thought of it that way. Like, would you be willing to come and talk to our department, our outdoor club or our marketing department or our college or our university? And so I would bring these conversations back to Sydney, my partner, and she was just like, you know, this is exactly the walls that we've hidden into our organization. Why don't we just build our own? She's like, you already have great people that you're having conversations with that are willing to hire you. We just don't have the stamp of an LLC, essentially. <laughs> so her background is in social justice. Oh my gosh, she's brilliant. So smart. And, you know, I just kind of fell into this work because that was just kind of the way that I... I've always kind of been a big critic of leadership development as well and leadership skills. Mm -hmm. Because it's never a checkbox either. It's not just a one and done. We're always constantly trying to improve communication skills or negotiation skills. You know, conflict is always going to come up. So why can't inclusion be part of that list of being a basic leadership skill? And so it's kind of the way that we've reframed our diversity, equity, inclusion work is this is nothing like scary or... I mean, it can be scary, absolutely. But this is just a basic leadership skill. Being inclusive can help your business. (laughs) It can help your strategy. And so let's work together on that. So we ended up co-founding Real Consulting. And so it's been a really fun journey to put our expertise together and work with companies that are coming to us that are just struggling. Just asking questions. Like, let's just have a conversation. Let's just see where you're at and work and build um, a strategy uh, for you, whether that's marketing or your leadership team, etc. So it's been really fulfilling to kind of not be able to do that in a structured space and kind of getting rejected and see that. This is a service that people need. Also, I think that's really good for the outdoor industry as well. So it's been pretty exciting. And yeah, we do anything from Just basic questions if you have questions and want to hop on a phone call or if you're trying to form a committee in your company or even just build larger strategies as well. We've also done new student leadership orientation. So if you're like an outdoor club, we've also helped just do leadership training as well. So it's been a really fun journey to to work with Sydney on these projects. Yeah,
0: that sounds really exciting and really necessary work. I'm wondering, could you share a project that you really enjoyed working on or something that either that you have worked on or are working on with Real that you thought has been really productive or fruitful in some way?
1: Yeah, I would say one of the largest projects that we've worked on, which we actually were pretty hesitant about, (laughs) was working with a really, really large student population. So this was part of their new leader orientation group. So we got to be part of their onboarding process. And so we plugged in with the actual adult educator group, which was a smaller group. And then we ended up working with a student population of just over 200. <laughs> and so building a workshop that's mostly geared towards a smaller group <laughs> and yeah. scaling that was really fascinating. And the feedback we got was pretty positive and really also constructive as well. So I think both of us just learning together and how to navigate that I guess was fulfilling and we also learned a lot from the students too and were able to kind of provide and set the tone I guess for their incoming freshmen so that was kind of their role so it was really impactful I think the most impact that I felt personally through that was you know they're wilderness leaders so they're going out you know kayaking or rock climbing etc and you know, just kind of being more aware of the surroundings that they're in, the ancestral lands that they're on, and to kind of have a different lens in the way that they approach navigating the wilderness. And so what does the wilderness even mean? And the very definition of wilderness can mean many different things from people from different backgrounds. I was really touched, I guess, when it was my turn to kind of present on that (laughs) was like, I felt like I had like this Thing in my throat of like wanting to just cry because I was so excited that I was able to share this. <laughs> yeah. Like, just looking at our history and how lands were kind of stripped away from indigenous people, and, and now, like, looking at that of what does the industry look like because of that, you know, or how black people were restricted from pools and et cetera, and you know, looking at that with a different lens was able to set up some students, I think, in a different aspect. So, that was pretty fulfilling, I would say.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really amazing presentation or workshop or facilitation. I already like have so many thoughts about the different meanings of wilderness and how we define and construct that concept now versus like through a colonial lens and how that's impacted what's now the United yes, States. Exactly. How we define wild. Yeah, all of those things. There's there's so much there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think the only other thing I wanted to, I guess, make space for, and if you would like it is, you know, I really appreciated when I first reached out to you, how intentional you were kind of asking me about my approach to feminism and the way that the podcast approached feminism. So I wanted to make space if you wanted to say anything about that for you to kind of share your apprehension about being on a feminist podcast, but also if you don't want to speak to that that's perfectly okay. I just wanted to make that space if you would like it.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) I think especially most recently with International Women's Day kind of coming up and Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of looking through the lens that I have in my perception of feminism is majority of just white women fighting for white women's rights. (laughs) And so thinking back to, you know, the 1920s and Susan B. Anthony was kind of this pivotal person to help fight for women's right to vote. But if we kind of look a little bit deeper, she was only fighting for white women's right to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking just about how Native Americans weren't actually considered citizens, you know, till almost 30 plus years later, and then also granted the right to vote. Then again, years later after that. So just kind of looking at the word and the term, I kind of just just from my background and experience I naturally just kind of resist um, that word. But really just kind of making sure that this is an intentional approach, that feminism is intersectional, that it includes many identities. It's not just for white women. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to be cognizant and, and make sure that I was that I was working with other feminists that are also actively pursuing marginalized women's rights as well. So you know, we're looking at trans, queer, etc. all different types of, of folks. And how these are just basic human rights. And so can we approach that together? Absolutely. So, you know, after hearing kind of your first podcast, <laughs> which is yeah. not only acknowledging the land, but also just, you know, there are many, many barriers to intersectional identities. So I was like, well, of course, I'm going to be working with this person because they're already aware of this. Whereas, yeah. it's pretty off-putting when a white woman just kind of wants to kind of check her boxes I've noticed I've, I've ran into that mm-hmm. a lot of oh can we just post your picture on our Instagram actually I've had this happen to me before I've had an organization that's an international organization fly fishing and they wanted to post a photo of me and I said sure that's great and I talked about race I believe in that post I don't remember specifically but they ended up deleting it because their comments were, we don't need to be racing into fly fishing, you know, et cetera. So they weren't prepared to kind of face their consequences of not knowing what my platform was and what I was saying. And so, you know, that was pretty hurtful was to see that, that they ended up just taking it off because they just wanted to have, you know, just a brown face on their Instagram because they were lacking, but wasn't prepared to support me, you know. And so... Mm-hmm. So yeah, just kind of things like that, I guess. I'm open and I love intersectional feminism. (laughs) Yeah. And so just making sure that I'm working with the right folks for the right reason, I guess. So yeah, thanks for opening that up.
0: Yeah, of course. I'm really sorry to hear that happened with that fly fishing organization. I think those sorts of tokenistic approaches are just really harmful to everyone in the long run, but particularly to the people who are tokenized in them. And I... Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate it. Kind of your questions and I'm always happy to, I want to say like uplift and affirm women of color and trans women's critiques of feminism. I just think it's really important for non-white women, cis women, non-white cis women <laughs> um, yeah. to be able to critique feminism <laughs> and still like, even within that space of like fighting for gender equity, like we have to hold all of that together. So I appreciate you, you sharing and I'm really happy to kind of include that in this episode too, because I think it's just such an important conversation for me to be constantly having while running a podcast that has feminist in the title.
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely.
0: All right. I think that was everything that I had in mind for today. And before we sign off, is there
1: anything else that, that you wanted to, to say or share? I just want to say, if you're looking for or have questions about any work of diversity, equity, inclusion, or access, or like a social justice type of work, I'm available for that consulting service. <laughs> so I can be reached at either on my Awkward Angler account, that's on Instagram, or feel free to reach out email, which is info at consultreal.org.
0: Perfect. And I will link to both of those in the show notes so that anyone who's listening can just click right through from the podcast app easily. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated hearing all your stories and
1: everything you shared. Oh, thank you. you.
0: <laughs> Estados
1: to Thanks
0: for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll
1: see you on the road.